Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Okay, now saunter on out there, one leg in front of the other. Slow and easy. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. Uh, we have an interview here with Flint Dill. He's the screenwriter of American Tale, Five Goes West. Uh, you might also recognize his work from such things as the original uh, Transformers animated movie. Also did video games like Ghostbusters, the video game 2009, Chronicles of Riddick, Assault on Dark Athena 2009, among others. Flint, welcome to the show. Hey, good to see um, you here. Looking at your work, and, and you just came out with your memoir about your work in the 80s, Fievel Goes West came out in 91, so it's kind of a little bit past where the book ends. Oh, yeah, no, Fievel, Fievel was just a great project. I mean, you know, it was one of those things where I'd already, it was my second or third project for Stephen. I, I, I can't remember, but I, I know before it was Tiny Tunes what became tiny tunes it was we were called the looney tune movie or something but it was based on you know we were creating kids for the warner brother universe and at some point steven said oh i got good news and bad news and that and i said what's the bad news he said well we're gonna have to make tiny tunes a tv show you know we're not we're not gonna make the movie i was like oh bummer yeah what's the good news he said i got another movie for you and that was five goes west at that point chuck swenson had written a draft of it and you know it was good stuff you know so they had brought me in to uh to work on it you know it was a whole process and i think you know a lot you know the concept and a lot of the ideas and everything like that changed in the process yeah, it was great. I mean, I I, I, I have very fond memories of Bible Goes West. So you mentioned that you already had sort of an initial script you were going off of. So was it always Bible Goes West? It never was like Bible Goes to Massapequa? Yeah, it was always going to be you know, designed to be a Western. As I recall, it was always pretty much the same thing. It was just finding what the film was. At the end of the day, it, it is uh, an immigrant story. And and now we, you know, the American Tale brought Fievel into New York and the United States. And Fievel go goes west as Fievel going west. Yeah, and so it's a Western. So you've worked in different um, licenses before, whether it's it's Batman or Ghostbusters or, or what have you. Like with Fievel Goes West, you did have that first movie. On the other hand, as you mentioned, you know, the setting is a Western. It's pretty radically different than what you had in the first film. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, you know, the whole idea was that it was going to be a, you know, a fun kind of, of Western, and it always was. And it was gonna. It was gonna be a little less sentimental, and uh, you know, than than the original, and that was always the intention. Yeah, you know, we start out with, with uh, you know, five old sisters singing somewhere out there. You know, the big song from American Tale, and like somebody's throwing uh, you know tomatoes at her. By the time that's the first thing you see in the movie, you know, okay, we're not going on a uh, sentimental journey here. This is a big fun cartoon, and at that point. Yeah, you know, I was really fascinated by the idea of, of just doing something 
it was just you know a cartoon that really felt like a cartoon you know what we know from when i was a kid yeah and you know looking back on it there's so many whether it was like looney tunes or hannah barbera so many of those old cartoons used the wild west setting yeah oh yeah i mean you know because that was a whole generation of filmmakers and people who had been effectively raised on westerns everybody knew the rules of westerns and so yeah, you use a genre so you can you just tell your story and sort of shortcut exposition and stuff like that. And people understand the tropes and, and you know, and so it wasn't, you know, heading in there saying, oh, we're going to be the most ambitious film in the world, breaking everybody's previous concepts of movies. No, it's like, we're going to do a really fun, funny story. That was the, the spirit of the project. At the end of the day, it felt like, you know, this is a fun, very watchable cartoon with a little bit more to it. I liked about the the Western setting is it's not just the the first film warmed over again. You have a lot of new characters. It could have easily been, I don't know, Fievel gets amnesia and he has to wander around New York again. I mean, there's a lot of sequels that aren't aren't as ambitious as you change the setting, you have different characters, you had, I mean, the voice cast, is that something that in the process came after you were on the script or before? Because you have to figure when you're writing a, an animated film, there is a lot of lead time. You have to have a, a green light script, which was my first job is just get it to, this is something that we can make that we believe in and we can green light. And that, you know, that was task number one. Very quickly, uh, you know, I got notes from Steve and I got sort of their intentions of what they wanted to do. Yeah, you know, that was back and sort of these really young, you know, undefeatable days you have where I could write a script, you know, a script very, very quickly, you know, and not be compromising anything. And plus, back at that point, I'd just been on Transformers and G.I. Joe, and we were doing 65 episodes a year. So writing an episode of the script wasn't, you know, wasn't a very big deal, wasn't a very heavy lift at that point. But we knew we had a movie, you know, we knew it was going to happen. And then after that, it was just a matter of rewriting it a number of times over the rest of the production period, because the, the way these things work is that you have your draft and, and it's like, okay, you know, go ahead. And then you, you, you go over it and over and over and tune it and, and do a lot of draft. It had to be uh, quite the nice feeling, you know, coming from Steven Spielberg and, and doing it for a feature for him. I mean, you had done. Some oh, yeah. No, I mean, that was, that was like stuff. the biggest deal in the world. I mean, imagine, mm. you know, and, and, and Steven's a great guy. I mean, he's like incredibly, you know, he's he's one of these guys who who obviously, you know, was has you know, broken every known record of the film business and understands the medium everything about it and is also a really good guy and is very easy to work with as a writer from the point of view and the the ones who are always easy to work with are the ones who have written and know that it's hard and and that is less common than you would think it was i i would argue that you know westerns were the dominant you know medium of film Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons you know from the beginning beginning of film i mean you know, uh, films were shot in Los Angeles. And at that time in Los Angeles, you had, you'd go, you know, three inches, you know, down past Hollywood Boulevard and you'd be in the middle of a ranch or a, you know, a, uh, 
orange grove and we were a much more agrarian country at that point westerns were easy to get and like in the early westerns like actually were cowboys like they got getting paid for the movie and they went back wrangled cows you know one of its long suits is it's just really understandable and it it tells itself easily and it's got a simple understandable value system and they're good guys and bad guys and you don't need a lot of special effects you didn't have to wait around it's not like superheroes where you had to wait around for you know technology to allow you to do do stuff you know that was the only medium uh, you know animation was the only medium you could do a lot of stuff in those days you know in those days uh you could do superheroes in and and not have it you know look really you know like cheesy effects yeah, and there's something nice about with kind of the white hat, the black hat stuff, good guy, bad guy stuff with the Westerns mm-hmm. going on, where it's more, you know, you can actually root for the good guy against the bad guy, as opposed to having a bad guy that's sympathetic, that has this backstory, that it makes yes. the audience feel kind of confused, and I think, frankly, makes the final confrontation between the good guy and the bad guy less satisfying. It, yeah, it's just a very straightforward thing, and everybody sort of knew you know, what the format of the story was, what was going to happen. And then, so once you had that kind of, you know, certainty going in, then you could really go mess around with it and have a lot of fun with the, you know, with what you did in the film. Thanks so much, Flint, for this. This was a lot of fun. Sure. Uh, Anything you'd like to plug? No, I, well, uh, yeah, I'm working on a game I can't talk about now, so I can't plug that. Um, uh, no, I'm uh, just, uh, yeah, just uh, working away, still going after all these years. SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the HyperX Podcast Network. HyperX is our sponsor and the maker of the acclaimed Quadcast and Quadcast S microphones. Quadcast USB mics look and sound amazing and they're packed with features. With four selectable polar patterns, you'll get great sound no matter what you're recording. The included shock mount and pop filter mean you won't have to shell out extra cash for a great setup. Then there's the eye-catching LED indicator and tap-to-mute sensor, so you can tap in and tap out to stop broadcast accidents. It's time for you to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast and Quadcast S. Hello and welcome to SequelCast, Two and Friends, where a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and we're continuing our look at the American Tale uh, Quadrilogy. Yes, they did four of them. With an American tale, Fievel goes west. West. God, I'm waking up this morning. With us, uh, we have Thrasher. I'm not joshing you all. Let me tell you all something. <laughs> and Alex. Hey, Fievel's at it again. It's the only Western to have a Spider-Man. <laughs> Better a Spider-Man than a Spider-Pig. And uh, with us, yeah, we have right. a special. Yep. Yeah, with us, we have a special guest. Brian Auer from uh, Chat of the Wild. He's also part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. And uh, it's a Zelda-themed podcast. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm also uh, working on a Dom DeLuise uh, watch cast. No, not really. But <laughs> now I kind of want to. I stand, I stand DeLuise, so. Yeah, uh, DeLuise and um, John Candy, I always associate kind of with each. They have these mm. very warm presences and did a lot of voiceover work um, as well as in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, past sort of before their time, I think, I think they started a lot of good stuff to to give. Although Dom DeLuise's sons have done a lot of acting and stuff. I think one of his sons, Peter, was on uh, the third season of Sequest. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Um Yeah, I did. uh, My friend and I did a a short-lived movie podcast um, a couple years back, and Failsafe got into the mix somehow. 
Huh. And we both were like, huh? when when his one minute, 30 second <laughs> scene happened, we're like, oh, hey, that's fun. Yeah, he he popped up on an episode of um, uh, Beverly Hills 90210. He okay. he did he did all kinds of stuff you wouldn't quite expect him to be in. Um, and of course, all the Mel Brooks stuff. So well, you all remember when Dom DeLuise was on an episode of Stargate? No, no. Did he just he, do a voice, or he was a dude in like an alien makeup? He played. He plays two parts. Like they go through the gate, and they come out eight hours later with no memory. But all of a sudden, like Dom DeLuise in like a space robe is like a creature that only the people who went through the gate can see or hear. <laughs> and he's just kind of being generally funny. annoying, but funny in that Dom DeLuise way. <laughs> and then they, when they finally get to the bottom of it, they go back through the gate, and like there's like this sort of stately Dom DeLuise alien on the other side, <laughs> who like. <laughs> runs this whole planet of machines yeah and it's Dom Delo, it's something where um i mean he he's an actor and he can act obviously but but when he does the cartoon parts at least the don bluth stuff uh although don bluth didn't direct this but it's you know from the same kind of family he did the first show mm-hmm. you have him as the cat uh tiger in this he was the crow in secret of nim and in All Dogs Go to Heaven, God, which we talked about years ago in the show, he was the uh, what the dog friend with a baseball cap or something. Yeah. And it's all the same kind of like idiot friend who kind of stumbles yeah. into bad situations and usually has a musical number that doesn't fit tonally with the rest of the movie. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> well, I feel like it's almost like proto uh, uh, Robin favorite. Williams, Genie. Yeah, that's a great right. point. Sorry. Yeah. No, go on. Uh, Alex? Oh, it almost kind of seemed like like people recognized that he was like a fan favorite from the first movie, so he got much more business to do in this one as Tiger. He barely shows up in that movie, too. Yeah. yeah. Like mm-hmm. 20, 25 minutes to the end, we're in, we're in Tiger Town. Uh, yeah, well, right. Well, it's also clear in this one, I think they're giving him a little bit more room to improvise. And like, mm-hmm. I, I, feel, I feel like the, just the way he performs, I feel like it. Okay, here's the one key piece of information you've got to get across. We don't care how you get there. <laughs> right. I'm trying to think. Yeah. When, I mean, so this American Telephone Goes West came out in 91. Jesus would have been like nine years old at this time and had the unfortunate fate of being released on the same uh, weekend as Disney's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah so it, it got its ass kicked. Uh, understand I, why are you go against Disney as counter-programming? I'm not, I'm not sure, but... Um, it, it worked well for them in the first one, I think. Oh, That's that true, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have a history of doing that. Um, but We were saying, like, last week, um, you know, like, this is, like, when Disney got out disney you know? Like, mm-hmm. uh, American Tale killed yes. it. And then, like you said, bad, bad, bad timing. But I mean, I, yeah, I, I think the I think Great Mass sure. Detective is a better movie, but um, it, it certainly brought the people in five old. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the whole American Tale series is a rogue furry uh, indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You had like this. Thing, you had so much of the uh, anthropomorphic animal mascot stuff going on, both in video games and in cartoons. Mm hmm at the time but like in the in the 90s and 80s they were especially good with those designs i think well i mean we talked about how 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 horny a don bluth uh produced <laughs> yeah. animated and directed animated film can be and yet <laughs> this movie i dare say is the the horniest one yet 
it, it out worries Don Bluth. <laughs> I mean, kid me. Uh, I I was when I was rewatching it was like, oh man, like the same feeling of uncomfortableness. Like I can <clears throat> I I put myself back in 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 that position. I can remember feeling weird during certain scenes, being like, oh 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 god, no. <laughs> <laughs> The sleeper has awakened. No, that's funny. Mm. Um, so the the directing team that worked on this, uh, Phil Nibblink and Simon Wells, they um, were a directing team that worked for a while. They did things like "We're Back," a dinosaur story, mm. uh, which sucks. It's it's also like mm-hmm. a Spielberg kind of produced thing. And uh, "Belto," which I, it, as I understand, is kind of a fan favorite. I don't think I've ever seen it except for clips. And uh, oddly enough, they both are. Excuse me. Just one of them was the director on Prince of Egypt, which I think is a damn good uh, picture. Yeah, they, they both uh, kind of hung out at Amblin for a while, and mm-hmm. then one of them, when the DreamWorks thing happened, one of them, I maybe was it the one because someone someone came from a little bit of a Disney background too. Maybe they just saw uh, Katzenberg and just bailed. They went off and did. Uh, like an independent, more independent career where the other one joined up with DreamWorks. Yeah, I'm looking here. The The Disney one was uh, a Nimble Link, and he uh, did, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and and, and mm-hmm. that's some, some of that stuff in Disney uh, before then. And you're right. It looks like he did Iron Giant. Like, um, Oof. it's wonderful. Great. Wonderful movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, Wolverine and the X-Men, which is one of the million X-Men cartoons, but I understand that one's... Uh, actually better than you would think based on the um, art style the one that uh steve blum narrates the spike spiegel oh um a cowboy think, yeah no, yeah that, i think he's a, like, yeah. a narrator in that or something let me wikipedia on this isn't very good so i'll just lie yeah. and say yes uh, it's quite <laughs> possible it, it, that would match with like the time period of when it came out i it, that one had the gimmick of like uh, professor x is dead and wolverine has to lead the dumb uh, pups around reluctantly um, oh the x-men evolution uh, this is just called wolverine and the x-men i think it was only one uh. season um and, and the other dude simon wells you're right did stuck around uh did oh that's weird he directed the he's related to hg wells and directed the time machine live yeah. action movie with guy pierce which uh. is okay and the um did the motion capture movie Mars Needs Moms based on the Berkeley <laughs> Breathed. Um, I understand like the, the the graphic novel or whatever you call it is is quite good, but this was <laughs> uh, off a budget of 150 million made uh, under 40 million. Those those numbers don't add up if uh, if you were wondering, dear listener. <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's one of those things where you know Robert Zemeckis was pushing uh, his uh, studio thing he had going at the time. This was kind of the nail on the coffin for, mm. for that. And I think, um, but, but there you go. But yeah, back to America. He had a Pro- good run. He did. He did. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the writing on this, a story by Charles Swenson, who um, I assume has an animation background, but the screenplay is by Flint Dill, who I had the pleasure of meeting in person. And I've kind of talked to him online for a bit. Mm. Uh, and I w- will be doing an interview with him um, at the head of the show. Uh, I wish we could have got him on at this time. It just didn't quite work out. 
but he did like Transformers and G.I. Joe and um, lately did like some video game stuff like Diablo 3 writing. Uh, hmm. Interesting career. Um, oh, and he wrote for that Ghostbusters game with Harold Ramis and all those guys. Oh, cool. Oh, that was a fun game. Did you play that one, Ryan? I, I did not. Um, I ha- only had a Wii at the time, so I would have played the 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 weird offshoot one. I didn't I didn't have a, a mainline, I guess a mainline system. Sorry, Wii. Right. Um everyone apologizes for their Wii, it's fine. But <laughs> <laughs> the um that Ghostbusters so. game, they recently redid it for the more modern systems. And if you can find it on sale, it's definitely worth trying out if you enjoy that series. It's it mm-hmm. kind of feels like a Ghostbusters movie that was never made in some ways. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Bill. Yep. <laughs> Back to American Tale, Five Goes West. So, I, guess, I mean, this um, there's performed uh, amplification yeah. for this. Yeah, it didn't last for that long. They did. Um, we're back, a dinosaur story. This and the short-lived TV series I didn't even know was a thing until recently, called yeah. um, Five's American well, Tales. Thank you, Five's American Tales. And when I heard that title for the TV show, I assumed like, oh, he's going to travel all over America. But nope, it's the same characters in the Wild West as this movie. Oh. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like an okay. anthology thing too, right? Well, Thrasher, you got to watch a bit of that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I watched about half of the first and only season of the series. It's it's barely okay. Like all all the stories are kind of like stock sitcom stories. And one thing that I've noticed is that even though this isn't a Don Bluth you know directed film, they're really trying to go for that Don Bluth look and. Don Bluth style character designs just do not work on a television animation budget, especially when they're animated in a conventional way. Mm. So, so it comes off as, as sort of very flat. The characters are beautifully rendered, but then once they move, they look hideous and kind of herky jerky. <laughs> Although I will say there's an episode and actually I looked this one up. It's the uh, listed as the second episode of the series law and disorder. That I would say was the best of the of the six or so I watched. It's actually it's very fun where uh, they bring back the character Miss Kitty, uh, uh, and Tiger has uh, been tell- writing her letters saying that he's the marshal for the town, which apparently he's not, despite the end of this film. Uh, oh, and and anyway, so it's all about mm. uh, about Fievel helping him pretend to be the marshal while Miss Kitty is in town, and it's just fun because you get a lot of Dom DeLuise action. There you go. It's weird that they just take that character away, uh, Miss Kitty. You know, you're you know you're right because I because it's just like she's just gone by the time the series begins. So I guess huh. I guess she's a restless sort. She just always wants to be on the move. Mm. Too spicy for the kitties. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't teach them that move either. Oh, oh the dirtiest <laughs> line in the film. <laughs> yeah, like I did not see this in theaters. I don't know about you, uh, you fellas, but like I was, um, I saw this on video, and on video, this thing was a huge hit. Uh, I remember the posters for it at, at the blockbuster video and stuff everywhere. Yeah, this was one of those like rare occasions where it was a movie that we didn't have growing up, but everyone else had. So when everyone to mm. someone else's house, we ended up watching the American Tale or American Tale Five Goes West, and I couldn't for the life of me remember 
what the hell brought him west? I was like, I know he ends up out west. <laughs> and then I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, so that's how he went west. It was a, it was a British puppet masquerading as a as a cowboy. And then I'm like, that's why I forgot. <laughs> it 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 made me think of um like Rocky Raccoon when John Lennon's like, I'm gonna sound like an American, like I'm gonna sing an American country <laughs> yeah. song. Right. That's funny. Like the way. Yeah. He's- all is like actually like grammatically accurate and i'm like oh. well he was a latin professor so <laughs> <laughs> no i think yeah, john cleese i think is great as cat r wall but yeah that oh, yeah. whole bit where he's using the marionette mouse puppet the way that puppet moves is terrifying yes oh yeah at least they kept some don bluth in there it's, there you go that's I know. what i think of when i think of don bluth is just overly terrifying like menacing um antagonists but it's also animation (laughs) but it's also like walking back character development because it means after all of their experiences getting to america and finding a home in america they still haven't learned to be wary of cats passing themselves (laughs) off as mice in order to exploit them i think i think they realized it a little bit yeah i i think by the end of the first movie they've forgotten that because they 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 get rid of like a baker's dozen cats and they think that everything's fine now yeah it just struck me now the the thing at the end they send the cats off in a boat to china and i'm like wait is that really a joke about the chinese are going to eat the cats when they land <laughs> i don't uh... i don't think so because like none of them are nervous that that's gonna happen yeah i feel like it's just well what's the farthest possible yeah, okay. location you could feasibly get to with travel technology in the at the era and they're like well i guess hong kong I was just mm. thinking about that the other day after we recorded the show for the the first movie, and I was like, hmm, they, because they always try to slip stuff in here. Yeah, John Cleese, I think, as the villain, is one of the best uh, uh, performances in this film. He's Absolutely. generally creepy. Uh, the animation for bad guy for bad guys in animation uh, in general seems to be better done than all the rest. But I mean, in this especially, you got cool, cool shots. Uh, and John Cleese did this um, because you know the the Spielberg connection and he uh however like when he agreed to do it he didn't realize what he was going to get paid and it was the lowest he'd been he'd been paid in a decade and uh, they wanted him just, to do sorry oh, go ahead go on i was just say he just like written and directed an academy award-winning movie so um yes fish called wanda yeah right. <laughs> so yeah that's kind of funny they just seemed to get him in a good mood i guess and uh he the comment was they wanted him to do promotion, and he's like, I don't do work for charity. That was uh, what he was quoted as saying <laughs> at the time, which is pretty uh, pretty witty, I suppose. And he didn't do the voice for the cartoon, uh, obviously, but he does. Um, he, People might not know this, but he does. He has a pretty big side business doing corporate videos. And I only know this because I worked at a, uh, did data entry for several years at a company called Iron Mountain and we had time to kill. So they let us see their corporate videos and John Cleese did like six of them and they have jokes and they're well shot and everything. It was just weird. He's trying to make jokes about the name Iron Mountain, which there isn't much you can uh, do with that kind of almost like Germanic. Don't let uh, your Iron Mountain get rusty, eh? (laughs) <laughs> Iron Mountain. Why would you store things in a mountain? Shouldn't it be a box? <laughs> Something like that. But uh, anyhow, yeah, I, I don't usually think of John Cleese as doing villain parts, but he's quite good in this. 
I think well, uh, you know, I like he's also channeling some of his Silverado uh, juju there because that was uh, just a few mm. years prior to. In Silverado, I love that freaking movie, and John Cleese is damn good in it. Well, to to force us on another tangent, do you know who did the voice of Cat R. Wall in the animated series? Oh. Fresh no. from the critic, Garrett Graham. Oh, no Can you sure. remind me who okay. Garrett Graham voiced on the critic? Oh, he played uh, Franklin Sherman, uh, Jay's uh, adopted Oh, father. oh, oh, okay. The, the posh one, yeah. Push, I... dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but hey, speaking of which, there's another uh, There's another critic connection, because Chula show, yeah. is voiced by John Levitz. Correct. I can't hear him in there at all. Yeah. He's, it's, it's, he's yeah, putting no. on such a creepy voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, I like Chula, was... but I, yeah, I, yeah. Just, I just, I can't, he's disguising himself very well. Definitely, I, I, did, I was shocked when I saw that in the credits. Like Lovitz is, I mean, we're all Lovitz fans here, but I mean, he was theatrically trained and did Shakespeare, and is can actually do a lot more things, I think, than he tends to get credit for or gets offers to do. Um, and but he he does do a lot of voiceovers, and t- to see him in here as a supporting bad guy part, and I mean, that design of the tarantula is just creepy. Oh, it's yeah. so good. The gold tooth and and like the, yeah. he has like a cowboy boot on like the end of all of his legs. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that he we um the way he like slings the webs. It's it's pretty cool design and everything. I feel like, however, they could have gotten more mileage out of like the bad guy crew. They're they just kind of feel like peripheral to the action, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Like they get yes. some fun moments. Like I love that bit where like Fievel's trapped in the beer bottle and like Chula's trying to roast him over the candle. He's like, <laughs> "Oh come on, it's not cooking evenly." <laughs> Just turn the bottle up on up on its end. Turn it upright, and the mouse will have nowhere to go. Come on, he's not a smart bad guy. <laughs> no, that's true. That's really funny. Uh, yeah, this is the kind of game I you think they would do like a Nintendo side scroller tie-in for, but they didn't. But there was a PS2 American Tale One video game released only in Europe Ooh. that I've seen a YouTube Ooh. play of, and it's it looks awful. Oh, it looks like, it looks like a, ripped that apart. Did you? Yeah, it it was uh, it it just looks like a mobile game where you're just collecting things and you can't really move that much. Like it's just very limited. Uh, and it's yeah. also for a, a, a what is ostensibly a kids game, yes. um, ridiculously difficult. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, no, I'm thinking of the um, the first one. Sorry, I'm thinking of American I, Tale. So yeah, well, never mind. Yeah, no, sorry, I mean American Tale. They never did a Five Hundred okay. West game. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's the same one. I had to look it up because, like, in my head, I was confused of if there was like a tie-in NES game for this or not. I think like I might like my memory was like just kind of fogged. I think I like lumped in like Chippendale rescue ranger game into like an American tale game. And sure. I thought there was one, but no, there is not. Yeah. There's no five mm. ghost West game, which it feels like there should have been. Yeah. I was so sure I, that it happened. Uh, the, I, there is a super Nintendo. We are back a dinosaur story game. Um, when, oh. when my partner first moved in with me, uh, she brought her old any Super Nintendo games, and my friend and I were going through them, and testing them out, and we're like, "Oh, this one could be cool. They could do this, or they could do that." Now it's just a straightforward, really crappy side scroller. Oh man! I think as far as movie tie-in games go, and we'll we'll get back to American Tale: Five of Ghost West in a second. Uh, 
Probably one of the worst I've ever played was on, uh, it was on SNES and Genesis, and it was Toys, based on the Robin Williams movie. Oh, wow. What? Yes. Oh, weird, you're right. <laughs> I mean, that, that movie is a really weird <laughs> yeah. movie, and part of it plays like an isometric um, action game with bad controls, and then part of it is like a shoot 'em up where you're remotely controlling the um, oh, weaponized yeah. toys. And it uses voice clips of... Um, the movie and it, it's just really odd and super hard as I think all the games were back then. But of all the things uh, to make a movie out of a Robin Williams hellscape, <laughs> I wouldn't got to get as much money as we can out of that. Yeah. Uh, Kids love, um, political toy platformers. I should go back <laughs> and watch that movie. Cause I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It's surreal, man. It's, it's out yeah. there. It was a yeah. passion project for, was it Barry Levinson? Was Barry Levinson, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, man, I saw John and Joan Cusack at a convention, and I, I, I didn't have enough time to ask him a question at the panel, but what I would have asked Joan Cusack was about the movie Toys. Did you enjoy <laughs> eating applesauce sandwiches on the set? <laughs> <laughs> Just because so if I'm going to ask a celebrity a question, I'll be sure to waste it on something dumb. <laughs> I don't make him go, what the commentary hell? stuff. Yeah. Thrasher, get us back on track, please. Oh, yeah. Well, so, but I was going to say, so so the animation, so I, I've only, I had only seen this once before, before re reevaluating it uh, for this movie. And I come to find out, like, I know lots of people who this was their favorite film. Uh, huh. on home video uh but mm. well, one thing i i noticed i feel like i feel like this is made for home video because like the animation is better than i remembered but it also it feels like direct to video animation mm -hmm. well i mean you can there's there are scenes where like hey b team worked on this and yet yeah, some yeah. of this stuff at, at the beginning you have the um oh what's her name is uh is tanya the name of the sister oh yeah tanya yes yeah, she she sings somewhere out there, the, the big hit from the first film, and then gets tomatoes thrown out here. And I think the <laughs> animation there and the lighting and stuff is like quite good. And and then there's like other stuff where they're just like the immediate next scene where the father's picking up tomatoes, and it just looks like a Saturday morning cartoon. Like it's yeah, all all over the. You can tell it's not done by Don Bluth, but I'm sure maybe the money was less, or maybe it was just a. C and D team working on it. I don't. It doesn't look awful. It just doesn't yeah. look well, especially with the uh, the opener. Like you can tell, yeah. they spent a lot of time and money on, and it immediately goes back into New York. And and maybe with just the the grimy dinginess of it, they thought what? they could pass it off. Um, but it 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 felt a little jarring. Well, here here's something I just noticed. So the original um American Tale. Uh, it has an estimated budget of nine million. Fievel Goes West has a budget of sixteen point five million. It's about twice as much. It's so weird that this costs so much more, but but doesn't but doesn't look as good. Well, I guess a lot of that didn't go to paying John Cleese. Maybe Jimmy Stewart costs a lot more. <laughs> yeah, James, James Stewart. Yeah, uh, he 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 does not get out of bed for less than five million. I mean, uh, that, that was a. A big deal that Jimmy Stewart did a voice in this. Oh, yeah. As, I mean, he, he was mostly retired at the time, I believe. Yeah. The last Just thing, making talk show appearances and reading poetry. One of his last big, like, starring roles, I think, was The Shootist um, with uh, John Wayne there. Um, oh. Not, 
one of his later roles, I'll say. But um, yeah, and he was pretty old in that one too. I mean, well, something else I, I love though is that so you, so you have James Stewart in this James Stewart who has a long history in the western, uh, and who interestingly enough, so he plays the he plays the dog sheriff Wiley Burp in this. He played Wyatt Earp in uh, Cheyenne Autumn. Which, which uh-huh. is, and his Wyatt Earp is a similar kind of deconstructed version of an American myth. Yeah, and another um, another prominent Western, too. I mean, a lot of Westerns he's been in. Or most of them were, like, revisionist Westerns prior to the term really existing. I mean, like, Winchester 73 is a definite, like, kind of genre deconstruction, as well as, like, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, as well as uh, something like The Shootist. Um, and I just, I think his career in westerns is fascinating um cheyenne social club's another good one too oh but back on the the topic of animation so like despite the fact that it that it that it does look cheaper than the first film there are a handful of like like little things they do like there's a lot of like compositing or a real mist into the scenes for like mm-hmm. the steam on the train or like you know the the dust of the prairie which I I actually I found very very charming. There's also a scene which I feel like at first I thought it was done with compositing but now I'm wondering if it was an early use of computer assisted animation when they're escaping uh, Catterwall's gang of cats in New York. They all get in the sewer and they're in like a little tin of tuna fish going through the sewer pipes. And it's this lush, like high speed sort of 3D thing. And what what made why I thought it was compositing is is that the waves keep like covering the entire frame, which would let you change out background elements without anyone noticing. Mm. But it's so fluid and so fast. Maybe maybe those were all elements that were digitally assembled. It looks the, really good. The final good. shot has a is definitely digital, so they were using it. Yeah, there's um, I was gonna. I'm glad you brought us there, uh, Thrasher, because there were some like a lot of the a lot of like, the wider masters that you see in some of the earlier scenes in the New York stuff. I think look really good. Like a lot of the background paintings look. There, there's a lot of that kind of detail that kind of um, brought me back to the first film. And then there's some other scenes, like you said um, earlier, Matt, with like the tomato that just kind of look like, um, <laughs> and it, it's weird. It's, it kind of goes back and forth. Like some scenes look really damn good. And then some other scenes, not so much. Well, so, something that did really frustrate me is the way this movie treats Tanya, because she's, she's introduced. So we talked in the previous episode about how, the somewhere out there number. One of the things that makes it charming is that it's being sung by two kids who kind of can't sing, but that also makes it frustrating when you hear the yeah. song divorced from the animation. Just that, and, that one note. If they had just, if they had just rewritten that one note, yeah. it, it would have passed a little bit better. <laughs> but, but here when we, when we have Tony introduce singing somewhere out there and like they're throwing v- vegetables at her, I feel like the implication is more, it's less, people are annoyed with her singing that song all the time and more, well, she can't sing, but then later suddenly (laughs) she can sing. And like, she has these aspirations for being an artist, but then at the end of the film, when she washes her makeup off, it seems to be symbolically her saying, Oh, well, I've had my moment on the stage. I'm not going to be an artist, which just really disappointed. Like I came the polite way is saying (laughs) that I was disappointed. See, I, I, uh, 
I I always get like the uh like from Avita the the Augustin Magaldi like the the fictional mm-hmm. Augustin Magaldi vibe <laughs> where he's like clinging to the song that made him famous and everyone's just sick of it. So they throw tomatoes at her and stuff. But uh, yeah, I guess I could see because she sounds fine somewhere out there. Like those those first two lines, it's before she gets to that crazy high note. Yeah. So she could she could make maybe they were trying to stop her before she got to that note. There you go. I mean, you want to talk crazy high notes in Phantom of the Opera. There's the uh, think of me (laughs) number at the beginning. Where it does the da 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 da, da right? and and in some uh, touring productions, uh, I haven't seen myself, but friends of mine have said that the actress can't do the note, so the orchestra just plays that part of the song instead. <laughs> and it's I was like, thinking of the uh, Gerard Butler, where he oh, just screams the note uh, <laughs> towards the end there. If I ever get cast in Phantom of the Opera, which is highly unlikely for. A variety of reasons <laughs> I, I i would love to play the the uh the part that patrick wilson played in the film because you get to shout really bad dialogue like christine angel <laughs> to the stairs to the like he does nothing uh, oh but ba- back on the subject of, of music so like tanya like does get yes. gussied up by miss kitty and she does like perform at the saloon for all the cats and and I, I I do love her diva moment, and and this is another thing that I both love and hate. She sings this kind of fun, rousing Western number called "The Girl You Left Behind." I love but that scene. It, I love yeah. that song. It, it's it's a fun song. It's it's all really well animated. I love that it. it's like a diegetic musical number, which I really appreciate. And yet they keep cutting to Fievel's antics backstage so often. You don't really get a chance to appreciate the song. There's whole swaths of it you can't hear because it's happening in the background of Fievel getting into hijinks. And there's the uh, the song when they're all going way out west, way out west. Like the chorus is almost unintelligible. Uh, it's it's kind of <laughs> tough to hear what they're actually saying. Well, it's also um, a very yeah. warmed over "No Cats in America" as well. Pretty mm-hmm. much, yeah, yeah. And yet, for this, you know, they tried to do another uh, hit song with. Um, we had James Horner come back to to do the score and, and the the stuff, and it, the big number is "Dreams to Dream." And over the end credits, Linda Ronstadt returns as Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> yes, who uh, she dumped George Lucas to date a young Jim Carrey. Well, that's neither here nor there. Um, hmm. Okay. Yeah. I I, guess I, I think it's funny. I I I remember this being a thing where when this movie came out, um, Dreams to Dream didn't really hit no. the radio. What did though was they started replaying somewhere out there on the radio oh, yeah. again, and That's that funny. had like a resurgence. I, I recall that too. It did it, 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 so much like so that, that it, I thought somewhere out there was in this movie. What is in the beginning for the five seconds? No, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's gotta be like the ultimate slap in the face. Like, hey, your song's not popular, and it's so not popular. It actually just brings people back to the other movie. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, that's basically what happened. Oh, geez. Uh, like a few years ago, they did a, a an updated version of We Are the World. And it was so not popular. The original one, like, raised more money than the new one. Because yeah. they re-released them all for, for charity, uh, yeah. which, which is great. Um, but like that a... the old one just kicked the shit out of the new one. <laughs> Even though it's the same melody and Lionel Richie oh, yeah. was still involved and stuff. And they had good people doing it. 
it's like when a studio remakes a horror film and they re-release like the original Dracula, you know? That's it's like, oh, yeah. you know, they're redoing like Van Helsing. Like, remember Bela Lugosi's Dracula? And then, yeah. All of a sudden, all the truck stops in the world, the DVDs go out. Yes, exactly. Right. I mean, this this Wild West setting, it's something, there's something weird, I think, with Westerns where it's like people want to think, oh, this is going to be the thing that will relaunch the Western. And nothing really completely works. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, and it's the same with, with musicals, frankly, for that matter, and uh, in, in the movies. And yet you have shows like Westworld. Uh, oh, yeah, that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Pirate movies, space trucker movies. Um, <laughs> all those, anything with Bruce Flanch. Yeah, all these things <laughs> going on. And I don't know if this was the, the best setting for this film. Like, I kind of wish they would have come up with something a bit. He could go anywhere. And I, I guess he has to go to America because it's called an right. American tale. But he could go to New Orleans. He could go to Chicago and do yeah. the mob. I don't know. There's so much you could. I'm going to disagree. Also, it doesn't with you. seem too interested in the Western because I feel like there's a lot of in between stuff and not so much Western stuff. There's a lot of him like being lost and the Mirage gag and tig- there's a lot of tiger business. There's a lot of stuff on the train. And Humbly. I feel like, like, yeah, like I feel like there'd be more, you know, mileage, like, you know, bumbling around the western town and doing western stuff um sorry i thought you were about to say something well no that i'm going to disagree because i feel like this is this is a natural progression for the from the first film because i remember when because knowing we were going to get to five goes west i was like how are they going to get to the west like barbed wire would have been implemented and all like (laughs) i was just thinking of all the things that historically brought about the end of the old west and then i see that the first film oh oh this is 1885 never mind the Old West has a good <laughs> seven years left in it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I feel like it is like a natural progression, but like where else are you going to go? Because when it comes down to it, there are really only sort of two archetypal American stories. And one is the immigrant story, which they covered in the first film. And then the other is the Western. Uh, so like, like I, I don't think there's anything as American they could have done other than going out West. Let's save this for pitch a sequel when we're done talking about this movie. Okay. Speaking of which, we should. Uh, or, any last thoughts about Five Goes West? I do like that they reference um, John Ford's Monument Valley uh, quite a bit with the uh, scenery. Um, I feel like that's definitely got to be deliberate. It's a pretty iconic um, feature uh, played in a lot of westerns, and um, I think John Cleese has uh, some good business here as well as. Uh, uh, well, it's James Stewart, um, but yeah, I mean, not the first one, but it's it's fun. I like it. So you'd recommend it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Fifele Goes West, I would say not recommend. I think it's just a little bit uninspired at points and just sort of a mixed bag. Uh, I like that it's, it's more in the daylight. I mean, it's definitely a different aesthetic going on in the first film. They could have just... I, I don't know, had it been a prequel or just stay in New York and not really do anything new with the story and you have new characters and stuff and I, I like the bad guys in here. Um, but it, it just doesn't quite, it's missing something and I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, Thrasher. Uh, I, you know, strangely, keep in mind, the first time I saw this, I hated it. Uh, but <laughs> this time, you know, reevaluating it, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I was going to. Uh, and it had, I mean, it had lots of things I, I like, even if those things I like come from me knowing a hell of a lot more about film now than I did then. Um, I, 
I, I'm going to have to give it a, a, a overall a sequel, yes, if only because, despite its flaws, I was pretty entertained throughout. Uh, that being said, all the stuff with the Native American mice Ooh, is embarrassing boy. as hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all it's and all it does plot wise is just remove Tiger from most of the film. Yeah, I want Tiger out west. Just having him in the middle of nowhere, having a feast with these mice, uh, like the the only like the only part of that sequence that I, I felt worked is when we see like the rocks that look kind of like Tiger to the point where his face <laughs> is on the rocks. But it's Can like, I- oh god, it just. It it plays into some of the worst depictions of of uh, Native American groups uh, that you've yeah. ever seen in film, um, but I also got to give it a lot of credit for getting James Stewart out of retirement. This was his last film. Wow, uh, and it's not bad. Like I just love his old his 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 old. He's the perfect person to play an old grizzled Western dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna, yeah, I think it's I'm, on point. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to give it a mild sequel, yes, just for being generally entertaining to me from beginning to end. But also, but be forewarned, you're going to see some racist stuff in the middle of it that will remove Tiger from the film. Yeah, and a comment on the racist stuff. It's 1991. Everyone knew better. So yep. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and put that on the table. Um, sure. But uh, fuck, what the hell was I going to say? Um, yeah, I lost it. Never mind. Okay, and Brian, would you recommend? See, I, I think with the uh, we we have strong performance from from Deloise, from from my dog drinking water, from my cats fighting the entire episode. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, from I think James Stewart does a great job. I think John Cleese does a great job. I think the film is paced so much better than the first one was, mm. um, but. Yeah, I I think I would recommend it as a sequel over the first one, but it, the movie still has it still has its problems. Um, I I don't I don't know. I think Don to the pacing thing. I think Don Bluth just has a problem pacing overall. I feel like his movies are 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 they should be longer, but we still have this kids eighty to ninety minute format, and so um, we've got someone here who knows how to write an eighty minute movie, and so it, it kind of moves along, but. Um, yeah, like the, the animation certainly gets worse as the series goes on. I, I think you can do worse than this movie. Um, uh, also it's, it's, I, I'm probably not going to watch it again, but yeah, uh, I, I would at least, I would at least, uh, recommend it on, on those, on that criteria, I guess. Yeah, I you know, mean, I just I mean, noticed yeah. this is a 75 minute movie, five minutes shorter than the original American tale. <laughs> mm-hmm. Frankly, there's nothing wrong with the cartoon feature being 75 minutes. Oh, no, like, no, just, no. It, just, it keeps yeah. raising the question, where did all that money go? <laughs> I, just, I, I, think, I think the flipping, first one just took forever to make and had less people working on it. Yeah, this yeah. said they used 15 different animation studios um, all around the world. And you can mm-hmm. tell. Yep. So, Explanation. Um, we're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks we do linguistic analysis. The Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Check us out at the HyperX Podcast Network. Take a time machine back to before the world went to hell, around the year 2000. The 80s and 90s were so rad. 
The movies, the music, the TV, the games? That's what I want to talk about. If you're cool enough, join us and listen to Less Than 2,000. Because that's all we talk about. Adam and Chad live Less Than 2,000. Now part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at one point they wanted to do like a new feature every year and be really... But animation is so hard, man. I don't know if... Uh, anyone else has ever tried to do it but it just takes a long time even if you know what you're doing and you're good and you're fast even that bill plumpton can still shit stuff out all by himself just blow without snapping his wrist off blows my mind I, I, even spielberg when he started working on uh the first one with Blue, yeah. he was like i'm surprised at how long it takes when i want to make a small change to something uh-huh. like, yeah dude <laughs> yeah <laughs> This isn't Hanna Barbera. You can't do retakes <laughs> with the animation. No, right. Or uh, also, just just a shout out to Dom DeLuise saying "Darly baby buggy bunky boo" or whatever <laughs> it was. <laughs> just that line. It's a good one. Good tongue twister. Um. So, so I, the real let's... question is: Do we love it or leave it? Oh God. <laughs> let's uh, let's do pitch a sequel then. <laughs> I will begin, because I always have the worst ideas. I think they usually involve characters being babies, but I don't think I'll do that this time. I think, I, I think I'll think i do... Back in Russia. Yeah, yeah, back in Russia. Uh, I, I think I, for American Tale, I will have it take place... Um, they go further out west to California, where the budding film industry has started. And uh, you have both American, uh, mostly Jewish filmmakers, kind of escaping Thomas Edison, trying to get copyright on movie making, <laughs> fleeing to Hollywood, which is the real reason why they all fled to Hollywood. Um, yeah, yeah. And you also have like mice filmmakers doing it at the same time. And I think there's nothing Hollywood likes more than a movie about themselves, about filmmaking. <laughs> That proceeds to usually not make much money, but gets nominated for a lot of awards. And wins and, a lot of awards. <laughs> yes, and, and I think it would be called An American Tale, Five Hole Goes Hollywood. Although now that I said it out loud, that sounds like a, a porno from the 70s or something. But yeah, um, it would be called Lights, uh, and the tagline, Lights, Camera, Raction. Rack, <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. Thank you. Uh, Brian, what's your picture sequel? I would uh, I would also go Bible goes further out west, uh, but <laughs> I, see, so they're looking for a a. They think that the West is going to be this like Garden of Eden, lush place. Um, they're very wrong about that, and so they go further out west to California, and they end up in the Sierras and uh, and meet John Muir. Muir Meows. Um, <laughs> the naturalist, brave and pure. Yeah, and and it's all about uh, fighting against the uh, the fat cats uh, to establish Yosemite somehow. So, uh, yeah, that that's that's my. Uh, I'm sure you could mine something out of that. That's. I imagine there'd be like a painting montage in there. Yes. Yeah. Where where everyone just kind of picks up their easel and moves around from time to time. We could have all the backgrounds look like they're done by Ansel Adams. Mm. <laughs> just yeah, there's a lot of matte painting in this movie, so um, we'll we'll sure. keep. They'll just be. It'll be them painting the backgrounds. An American matte painting. I like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Alex. Rat painting. Oh, 
Very good. Alex, so, what's your pitch is equal? Big shocker. Um, yeah, no, I'm going Hollywood too. So uh, it turns out all this time with the, the, you know, the saloons and the Western town, it feels a lot like a available Western town. Well, because it's actually a set from a Western is that that's where they're at. They're just at the universal back lot, you know, Western mm-hmm. lot five or whatever. And then they see all the actors and crew come in because they haven't been shooting there for a while. And they're like, oh, shit, this is actually a movie studio. Um, so when the, the crew and the actors come and start shooting and everything, uh, uh, Fievel and, and Tanya are running around the, uh, back trailer of, uh, of an actor. And then, um, it turns out that the, someone gets the, uh, you know, Fievel on his shoulder and kind of whispering in his ear and stuff. And he's kind of like a slick talking Cary Grant type, you know, and then it kind of turns into this thing where it's like, Hey, the man in the mouse, you know, pretty cool. And he becomes this little sidekick. And then, uh, you know, Fievel becomes a, you know, a, a screen darling being a buddy to, uh, you know, a slick talking, uh, you know, Western movie star. And it's called uh, An American Tale 3, Fievel Goes West, in parentheses, ERN. <laughs> wow. So, so I want to I tie mine more into the, the, the history of, of, of the West. So... I'm going to do American Tale, The Legend of Fievel's Gold. <laughs> and, and you already got Love It, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's true, it's true. He, yeah, he can come back. He can absolutely come back. And and the whole the whole theme is, you know, they go out and, and you know, Fievel and his family, they have, uh, even even though, you know, his father's a, 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 a becoming a prosperous fiddle maker, uh, Fievel and Tanya and Tiger go out and they, and they strike gold. Uh, and they decide to become prospectors. But around the same time, uh, this is when uh, when the gold rush is really kicking off. This is also the time that uh, laws were passed. And this is a real, a real thing that happened. Laws were passed making it illegal for people of Mexican or Spanish descent from prospecting for gold. And if and effectively, you could legally jump a claim if the person working the claim or who had filed that claim was of Mexican or Spanish descent, you know, it's all tied into fallout from the Mexican American war, the Spanish American war, and just good old fashioned racism. Um, And so Fievel finds out about this because some cats are trying to pass a law saying mice aren't allowed uh, to, to uh, prospect for gold. And so Fievel ends up getting hooked up with a mouse equivalent of Joaquin Murrieta, the Mexican Robin Hood. Uh, and once again, they lead a revolution against corrupt cats. Uh, and this time, they somehow get the, all the cats in the West uh, trapped in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, uh, once again, they completely fumble the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So, this will be, yeah. so that's Fievel, that's American Tale, The Legend of Fievel's Gold. I, I certainly wouldn't be retcon the entire movie and, and, uh, and, and go back to New York. There you go. Yeah, I'm but, wondering why, once we get to Treasure of Manhattan Island next week, why they're going back to New York. Oh, and, and picked out the the most problematic element from, from this movie to focus on. Yeah. My other, my other pitch a sequel on the back burner was like a, there will be blood crossover, but I figured that would be too grim. (laughs) Oh God. I didn't even think about uh, doing uh, the oil angle. Yeah. I I drink your fondue. I mean, one that just came to mind for me was Fievel goes Pacific Northwest. (laughs) <laughs> and you, you have something with the the lumberjacks and 
the people getting shanghaied and stuff in Portland. There's a lot of history with that. I think maybe you do some kind of weird. Oh, maybe five will get shanghaied, which isn't as fun as it sounds. Now that I think about it. <laughs> well, I mean, in that one, the, yeah. I was saying, in that one, Paul Bunyan is the uh, the mythical <laughs> figure that he looks up to, and Fievel yes. doesn't even realize that the passed out geriatric man on the porch is is who's who's twenty feet tall as Paul Bunyan. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Very good. Um, so um, let's go on to what you're watching as we round things out here. Um, Thrasher, why don't you start? Right, so I've been watching uh, Dracula AD 1972. Yeah, uh, Christopher so, Lee. Oh, yeah. It's a Christopher Lee Dracula film from Hammer, uh, and it takes an interesting tack. Like, the the beginning, like, the opening scene is just Dracula being violently dispatched uh, by Van Helsing, and it's just a brutal Dracula murder. And then we just cut to 1972, which was the year of the film's release, and it's really fun, these sort of like these young mods who are bored and looking for like, you know, they're they're getting bored with sex, they're getting bored with drugs, they're getting bored with the rock and the rock and roll music, they're looking for something to do. And one of them's like, hey, let's let's pretend to have a black mass. And they break into this construction site, not realizing that that site is where Dracula died. Uh, and in fact, the, the guy who's well, pardon? Ain't that the way it always is? Oh, always, always. You never know when there's a secret Dracula, but there's more secret Draculas than you think. Um, turns out he is some his family is somehow connected to Dracula. So they do this really creepy psychedelic black mass sequence. Uh, and then as a result, Dracula rises from his grave uh, and is trying to re and starts to try to rebuild his power through this kid in the modern era. And there's like, you know what? The kids start going missing. There are police investigations. Uh, there's a character that turns out to be descended from Abraham Van Helsing and, and has some like like actual knowledge. Uh, oh, and who helps the police like investigate occult crimes and, and he gets brought in. And it's really fun. And they really do a great job of sort of contrasting the the classical evil as represented by Dracula with like actual evils of the modern day and they really do everything they can to anchor this film in the 70s and strangely enough it doesn't date it it just makes it feel like a real period piece like you oh, really feel name. like you're hmm? oh I'm sorry and the kid's name is Johnny Alucard <laughs> oh yeah yeah which yeah, that's a name that Castlevania showed up feel to it so oh, often, yeah. yeah, that's a name that shows up so often in Vampire Ephemera that I kind of have to <laughs> overlook it now. Yeah, Cause like, exactly. Because like the first time, okay, the first time I can believe that Alucard works. I cannot believe it working ever again. <laughs> it's like it's like the free space on the bingo card in the middle, like Alucard, that it's going to oh, be yeah. there. Yeah. And the thing, <laughs> actually, my favorite, my favorite, this comes from Dr. Madblood's movie of having, uh, having Count LeCoudre, and LeCoudre is Dracula spelled sideways. <laughs> That's awful. That's, no. <laughs> That's only slightly better than Dr. Acula, which I, I've seen in a few <laughs> shows. The, oh. One great bit of trivia is that Christopher Neem, the kid who plays Johnny Alucard, um, there was a take where Christopher Lee got carried away and actually pierced his skin with his vampire fangs. So on his Ooh. on his um, acting resume, he actually writes that he is an actual vampire bit by Christopher Lee. 
which I think is fucking awesome. It's, now I want to be bit by him so that I can exactly. say I'm, you know, a couple steps removed from a. Christian Not only that, I, I would get the bite marks uh, tattooed with red ink. Pass right. that torch, mm-hmm. yeah, and and have that as a, a I don't know, a icebreaker, I guess. But yeah, that's that's a lame as well close to that joke. Okay, uh, Dracula AD nineteen seventy skin breaker. Really skin breaker. <laughs> Is that the last one they did, or they had a few more after that? I feel oh, like they. I feel like they had to have done some more, but I, I'm not, I don't know for There's sure. One more official one in Hammer's Dracula line, and it's um, Satanic Rites of Dracula, and it's one of the only Hammer films to have a quote for the from the Bram Stoker's novel. Um, it's, it's another modern day one where Dracula is like a like wealthy industrialist. It's fucking weird. Hmm. You know, <laughs> you know that's funny. That one has Satanic Rites in the title, and then the last Frankenstein one had like Monster of Hell or something in it. Frankenstein, uh, the monster from hell, yeah, and then the title. they did like a weird reboot with Ralph Bates in the um, Frankenstein role, which is, I think, uh, it's got some generic name, like the horror of Frankenstein or something like that. Yeah, uh, the thing I've been watching, this was a, a horror movie, but it was a horror comedy. Um, if I've said this before in the show, please stop me, but it's Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. Oh, <laughs> this, this is a 1980 uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde spoof starring the hilarious Oliver Reed. Um, so the gimmick is uh, he's Dr. Heckle, who's a nice, monstrous looking uh, podiatrist. But when he <laughs> drinks this potion, he becomes Mr. Hype, who is written as the slick 70s dude. But as Oliver Reed plays him, Mr. Hype is looks like a stone blooded killer. Or, or rapist or something like it's very intense because that's what Oliver Reed usually plays. Oh yes, it, it doesn't work at all. Um, even though it came out in 1980, it was filmed in the late 70s. So if you want to see some 70s London uh, clothes and cars and stuff, it's kind of cool for that. But why those bad... names though? Oh, like, like Heckle. Heckle seems like yeah. You know, I'm antagonizing. A performer and then hype would be like i'm backstage going like you got it man you got it and so right. like it, it makes me think of like someone's gonna about to do stand-up comedy or something is it yeah, is I mean, it possible that the novel could have still been under copyright no um i think just the the writer uh, who's also the director charles b griffith um just was more clever i think than he thought it was more clever than it was but i mean this guy he Started out as a writer for Roger Corman. He wrote the original Little Shop of Horrors, Death Race yeah. 2000. I mean, he he has a lot of really... Barbarella did some uncredited stuff on that. So, I mean, really clever stuff. And that he got a chance to direct some. Uh, and this is one of the things he did. Um, it's a choice. So, it, I think this is by, like, Canon Films, actually, this one. Uh, and was released as a TV movie instead of theatrical. Um, I watched it on Paramount Plus uh, streaming. Um, it's not good, but if you feel like watching a strange brand of crap, um, uh-huh. it's might be worth your time. Uh, a- Alex, what are you even watching? I, um, revisited an old favorite. Well, not that old. It's, uh, it was my number one film of 2017. And that is, uh, Bill Morrison's, uh, Dawson city frozen time. It's, of like a documentary essay film. It's basically what happened is that like there's um, a city out in the Yukon, Dawson City, and it was a huge um, spot in like the kind of like gold rush boom times. And it became this like weird little microcosm. What happened is that 
there was a movie house there, and what they did is that they buried like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reels of like old silent film because they couldn't really store it because it's combustible and you know led to many fires over the years. And they found like all of this, like you know, uh, like newsreel footage, archival footage, um, like a lot of reels from thought to be lost silent films. And Bill Morrison, the director, kind of just like went through of this like endless amount of footage and kind of assembled this documentary around the history of Dawson City and like the history of cinema as well, as well as like how it correlates with the gold rush and like you know the the big old boom times and how the this like kind of little area of land was just this huge microcosm for like i guess like the american endeavor and also kind of chronicles like lost uh silent film it's such a fucking wild movie and um really immersive and very 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 atmospheric um i would highly recommend it to anyone who's a history and or movie uh buff it's a really wild flick really cool to watch um dawson city frozen time i would uh recommend that wholeheartedly Where can people Great find fun. it i pretty sure you can find it on Vimeo or um, oh, maybe uh, the I think the Criterion channel might have it streaming. Um, hmm. uh, hmm. Apple TV, I think it's Amazon Prime too, so I would definitely check it out. It's really cool. And Brian, what you've been watching? Um, so over on my uh, Zelda show, we're doing a, a like Patreon season of the Legend of Zelda cartoon. Oh boy. Which um yeah, it as bad as you remember or think it, it it's so much worse. Don't, like I've been telling people like don't watch this show. <laughs> but excuse me, princess. Yeah, and and that's the thing is the the first like you know you you know that everyone knows that line. It, it's like a multi-generational meme. Uh the first time he says it is to gaslight the princess um <laughs> to into her like thinking that it was okay that he uh, basically cat called her while she was in like her underwear. Um, it's disgusting as a show. <laughs> and uh, like the one, there's only one guy who wrote it and he wrote for like a bunch of random stuff. He wrote like a couple um, uh, of the good Disney afternoon cartoons, like the, the Hercules one, which was actually pretty good. Yeah. And uh, the Buzz Lightyear Star Command show, which I also remember with Patrick Warburton as Buzz Lightyear. The yeah, that had William Shatner do do uh, one of the songs on the credits. Uh, and yeah, that I remember that show being really good too. That this is he must have had oversight because as the uh, it, part of the Mar Super Mario Brothers Super Show, this one the, the Zelda show would air on Fridays, and then the other four days of the week were Mario. But the the Mario segments had uh, the cartoon part, the live action parts, um, four times as many episodes a week, um, and so they kind of just left this one guy alone to to write the entire thing. And, and other than the director going, giving it a once over and and giving it a thumbs up, no one really corrected his work. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of. His, uh, I, I think the way I described his, the way they treat Zelda is like a, uh, like eighties business world view of second wave feminism. Um, oh, and <laughs> it's just kind of, it's just bad and it hurts <laughs> and <laughs> it, it gets a little bit better as it goes along. But like that, the pilot is enough to like make me lose faith in humanity for 
two generations. Oof, so <laughs> it is is it, it is it loosely based off the the plot of the games? I know the early games that would have been out at the time didn't have much of a story. So but... so no, it, it's um they so the plot of the first game it doesn't really have much to do with the second game other than uh they pull bad guys from it and and kind of the 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 general rule is if we don't know what the hell he just called that thing it's a bad guy from the second game um <laughs> but uh the they have the in the first game you are collecting the eight pieces of the triforce of wisdom and at that point they have the triforce of wisdom it is a character in the show the 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 triforce of wisdom and the triforce of power talk oh they no have dialogue what um she the triforce of wisdom is voiced by uh, a woman and she drops the weakest rhymes wow. uh of all time but only speaks in rhymes and and basically the the plot of the show is if someone were to reunite the two triforces um they will then rule the world or something but the only one who seems to be doing anything who has any agency is ganon ganon is like <laughs> full-on um skeletor like i love his energy um he's trying uh no one else is <laughs> and it's it's just weird like link is this restless beyond sex pest awful human being who just <laughs> wants to fight and that's about it and so like yeah the 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 heroes don't really do anything other than react to uh pressure from the bad guys from time to time i've always really weird f format for a kid show where for the heroes it's all about maintaining the status quo so as a result yeah. the villain tends to be the most dynamic and ironically the best part of the series exactly because well, all and the yeah, time you're like end. you're playing the hero so like they don't develop the hero much because you're the hero in the games so then when mm -hmm. it comes time to like depict them it's like you said uh thrasher it's like eh, the villain's usually more interesting <laughs> and i love those little snorts they gave ganon in his dialogue he he, he also has this jiminy glick vibe to him where he like starts <laughs> down here and then he's like <laughs> and then he goes back down to the bottom again and 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 I'm here for it. Like at least that. I I I'll I'll give Ganon his his due. But don't crazy, don't don't yeah. watch that show. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the crazy I thing with like Link, uh, the catchphrase "Excuse me, princess." That's just a knockoff of Steve Martin's "Excuse <laughs> me." Uh, yeah, that bit that of, was popular yeah. in the '70s, and then. But I mean, it it's weird how the Link animation stuff has become so central to the YouTube poop. Uh, kind of <laughs> shit posting videos, both from this series you're talking about and in the infamous animation from the CDI uh, Zelda <laughs> trilogy. Yeah, or is it four games? I have no idea. I think there's and, just three. Yeah. Um, speaking of Zelda, you know that's a good segue, I guess, to for you to plug your podcast. Oh yeah. So I mean, uh, yeah. it, Go ahead. why don't you All explain right. the, the the premise? And it, it sounds like you're kind of almost near the end of the Zelda games. Are you going to end We're it then, there. or are you, are you going to transition to something else? Or well, I think I think there's plenty of Zelda media that we haven't covered. But so so the premise of the show is um, we we've my co-host Jeremy and I uh, have been making podcasts together for almost a decade now, but. Uh, when Breath of the Wild was about to come out, everyone on the show was going to get it. And we were like, what if we do a book club where we just kind of hang out each week and talk about this massive game that just 
seems to be endless. Um, and so we spend about three months doing that and it was a lot of fun. And we're like, well, we haven't, neither of us have really played uh, Zelda one. So why don't we just start at the beginning and, and keep doing this. So, so pretty much every episode is uh, we cover a dungeon. We're going through the series in order. Each episode is a dungeon and like the overworld segment. And we, cool. we, we meet up and talk about it. And then we throw in um, uh, Zelda likes in between. So after Zelda one, we covered uh, Golden Axe Warrior, which is just a Sega Master System straight rip off of of Zelda one. Yep. And so we're yeah, we're on to uh, the net. We're in the DS right now. So we'll be playing the train one next, which is weird, but also some sort of weird love letter to Pac-Man. It's It's strange. <laughs> it's a strange game. I'm I'm interested to play it again. I haven't played it in in almost ten years. So, and uh, I'm also on a a speed running podcast with uh, Bradley Ward from from uh, Hair the Dogcast and also a Greenlit Show, where uh, we hang out with Spike Vegeta and Jay Hobbs, who are uh, two guys who are uh, involved with Games Done Quick, and and each each month we break down a new a different speed run game. So, those, those Games Done Quick are. Just fascinating to watch how they find the the ways to, to kind of glitch through things and and to have like flawless runs and um, I usually don't like sports of any kind but that stuff just sort of fascinates me especially when they do the yearly awful games done quick. Oh yeah, awful block is great. Yeah, the the one they did for uh, recently for King's Quest Mask of Eternity was was <laughs> mind blowing because it's quite a long game and and they beat it I think in under an hour. Yeah, some of those uh, old adventure games are are kind of it, it's funny how much you stumble around in them. And then like even stuff later, like stuff like Mist, where you're just like, you could probably beat this in like 20 minutes if you know what you're doing. Well, technically, you could beat it in less than five minutes if you know what you're doing. Oh, right. yes, that's yeah, how you get okay. the best ending for the game. If you know the phone number of the developer or something, it's <laughs> some very arcane number based uh, puzzle. And and I think Mist just got re-released yet again for vr so no that, that might no, be one of the I most don't. re-released games of all time oh boy i don't miss did, playing did it they... at all Amanda, uh, of... mm. no go on what was that oh a lot of sequels too uh riven and yes. zabadab and plopadoop and um what the hell is his name the brad Dourif is in uh, one of them no shit yeah when they started having more actors and tried to do a plot. Yeah, that that eventually went live action. Um, yeah. Way after the the CD-ROM uh, full yes. motion video fad. So um, I think like the third, I think it was the fourth one is when they started doing live action stuff in, in the Myst games. But yeah, kind of so <laughs> kind of an interesting like, choice. I remember those like uh, like or like when I first playing them. It's like a very like non people oriented gameplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's specifically why I didn't like it because I I grew up playing um, you know like the Lucas Arts Maniac Mansion stuff where you're talking to a bunch of people and King's Quest where you're talking to people mm-hmm. and I felt very lonely playing Mist and I think that's part of the point but it also just made it mm-hmm. feel really uh, cold and, and lifeless yeah like a, it, like it a never Christopher Nolan long. film or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, yeah I you, the... you're just yeah. you don't hit um, there's not good hooks in there. Yeah, whereas like um, Day of the Tentacle or something, I just I wanted to keep 
moving through the game to see more stuff, to talk oh, to more yeah. people, to, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, missed. I think I just ev- eventually ended up in the Constellation chair and never moved again. <laughs> see, I kind of loved it because I am not very competitive. So I like games where you could just kind of do stuff and you're not really beholden to a narrative. <laughs> and so I, I just kind of like wandering around, clicking on stuff, looking at books and bookshelves and chairs and blimps and all that weird shit. And also I was like 10, so. Yeah, one of my uncles, he's not a gamer at all. Old Tetris, he liked a lot, but uh, he, but he's he's really not much of a gamer. And But missed for whatever reason, uh, maybe someone got him for him as a present. And he got so into it, he like took off work for a week and just like wasn't seen <laughs> by people. <Wow. laughs> like it, it really did it for him. And then he's like, I had fun with that one. I'll try Diablo one. And, um, he, it was, uh, online pretty much, uh, if you wanted to play it that way. And he's like, people on the internet are dicks. And I'm like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's already it gotten my, worse. Uh, my dad and his brother were, were, well, at least, especially my dad were, uh, old eighties PC gamers. So, um, oh, man. My uncle got way into Mist. My dad didn't, though. He and he and I would play a lot of LucasArts games together. Yeah, I. Uh, oh man. Um, yeah, I've been talking on Twitter to David Fox, who designed like Zach McCracken and Maniac Mansion, and mm. he might have he might have done work on indiana jones and the last crusade a little bit it's kind of those earlier ones and i'm trying to get him out to speak at the portland retro gaming con because he said because i said have you ever come out and he's like well they've never invited me and like what so i I know some people there so i'll try and make that happen but it it's just to me it just seems like a no-brainer he did exactly crack in in particular is a very batshit 1970s uh, conspiracy theory uh, newspaper man game. It's it's very strange, and and I love it for it. Very obtuse. Did you ever play that one? Uh, Zach McCracken. No, I think the first one that I think many. No, not Maniac Man. Um, Monkey Island was the first Lucas Arts game ah, yes. my Dad showed oh, me. Yeah. I think he just took me right to the to the classics. To the good stuff. And so, did you have a sound card or a PC speaker? I uh, definitely had a sound card. Definitely. Had, my dad, yeah, was a uh, complete uh, PC nerd. So we had all the hot stuff. I was never allowed to get on the internet, but my dad uh, definitely had ways to do that and download things. He we he hated physical uh, media. And so everything even back somehow, then. Wow. Oh, yeah. Couldn't couldn't stand it. So everything had to be on, you know, somehow on the system. He did not want to have a a CD case full of of uh, CD-ROM discs lying around. So, I mean, offices back in the day would just have pirated software and unlabeled disquettes just like in the middle of the office, like whether it was accounting or, or security or whatever it was. Like mm. my dad brought home all this stuff like, oh, we got stuff, these free games at work, Battle Chess. Like I don't think he even knew what piracy was, but uh-huh. it was, I mean, you can never get rid of it, but it, the way that it that it was so common back then everywhere i think i think uh it was just kind of surprising looking back on it i i think as long as he could get it loaded onto the the computer to where he would never need the disc again or something like that yes then yep. he was fine with it so yeah you could so, get a, um yeah that was his you, outlook you could get Remember, it cracked so it wouldn't check for the disc or you're allowed to make one copy for archival purposes mm. exactly 
Remember, kids, you don't technically own your games. You own the license to play them in your... <laughs> I remember, as like, long as you've got the instruction booklet. I kind of <laughs> miss, like, back back in the day when you downloaded, like, games off of, like, you know, um, like the mid-90s. You'd spend, like, four hours downloading, like, a Pac-Man knockoff game designed by, like, by some grad student for, like, a project or something. <laughs> oh, these, you're, like, like, I remember getting that's, this, like, that's... knockoff Battle Tanks game. It was, like, rectangles, you know? You're pretty average, like '90s game shit. It was, it was a lot of fun, though. If if yeah, I were ever to like Pac-Man just, game, just, uh, was a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, Sorry. I was saying, if I were ever to design like a, a a '90s throwback, like old school LucasArts Sierra adventure game, I would include a fake copy protection segment that you could enable to get that experience, and it would have some weird color wheel or some sort of prop you would have to manipulate a physical item to get past the uh, copy protection. What's the what's the fifteenth word on page thirteen? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say a, a knockoff Pac-Man game uh, designed by a grad student. I thought that was just Ms. Pac-Man. <laughs> I guess they, they never graduated. Guys, yeah. I guess they off. never graduated MIT, so true. They made money instead. Yeah, uh, I mean, geez, Pac-Man Frogger was knocked off a lot. Um, oh yeah, almost everything. I mean, speaking of you know Sierra Online, a lot of their early stuff was like Frogger knockoffs mm-hmm. and Pac-Man knockoffs because those are play the arcade hits at home without the license. <laughs> They're, you know, without the name brand, it's like getting the uh, cereal in the bags at the store. Hell, even um, the Coleco had a had a thing you could buy to plug in uh, um, Atari carts into it. That's they're oh, knocking wow. out an entire system. Yeah, that's that's clever. Um, and I don't know how it was legal. Right. Uh, I mean, because. Right, because it's a totally different ecosystem. It's not like the Genesis did have an add-on thing that you could play Master System games on, but mm-hmm. that's Power all from base. the same company. Yeah, if you want to make the system look more chunky. <laughs> well, the you. funny thing with the Coleco is, I, I don't. I think they had the the license for Donkey Kong, but eventually there had to have been yes. a twenty six hundred version, right? To where you could you could play um, the. Donkey Kong, I'm not sure. Mario Brothers was on 2600. Okay. There was weird legal stuff with uh, Donkey Kong, and then there was a lawsuit mm-hmm. with Universal. Well, um, that, there's that lawsuit, but then there was also the lawsuit of, um, or where, where the deal fell through, where Coleco served Atari something saying, hey, you can't have Donkey Kong, or someone served it. Right when Nintendo was trying to get Atari to set up a licensing deal to distribute the Famicom in the U.S. And because of the Donkey Kong deal, that that fell through. And uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi walked into a room with a meeting with Coleco and just went on a tirade, all in Japanese. And when he was done, he sat down and the the translator stood up and said, Mr. Yamauchi is very upset. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it worked out for them because Atari was just going to either take the Famicom if it did well they would make a ton of money from it and Nintendo wouldn't or if the 5200 or the 7800 had done well they would have buried it underneath their own thing so they eventually just ended up hiring the entire sales team of the Atari and doing it themselves I got to see a 7200 in person for the first time a few years ago at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. 
And man, I miss that show so much. I think it's going to come back next year, but uh, it's actually pretty impressive with what it does. It's kind of like a quasi uh, Sega Master System thing. It has a lot going on with the colors. It's not merely just the same Atari stuff, although it was backwards compatible, I believe. I I would hope so. Um, Yeah, I I, I think I've only played a 5200 where with that awful joystick that doesn't center itself. Oh, gee, yeah. (laughs) Loose and everything's... It's worse than the, uh, the, the nubbins on the Switch. Yeah. Analog sticks. Oh, geez, we're over time. Okay. Um, but no, th- no, this was fun. Thanks so much for coming on, Brian, to talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Allegedly about Five Goes West. Um, <laughs> and uh, what's the name of your podcast again? You have a website uh, or a Twitter? You got Chat of the Wild. Chat as in C H A T. We talk about Breath of the Wild, or well, not anymore. But uh, yeah, at Chat of the Wild on uh, Twitter. Uh, my speedrun show is at NF Speedrunning. Need for Speedrunning. Um, and yeah, we're find it anywhere podcasts are found. Excellent. I mean, yeah, you're talking about Zelda likes. Um, one that I really like, although it has a uh, turn based battles, so maybe it doesn't quite fit, is Lufia 2. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play that? I one? haven't played that one, no. Yeah, um, Lufia 1 yeah, really Lufia sucks, but Lufia 2 is excellent, has a lot of good like dungeon puzzle things with switches. Okay. Yeah, we have a long list of of Zelda likes to get to. If we ever run out of Zelda games, there are plenty of Zelda likes to cover. So, (laughs) not to mention, there's a game I just got a review key for on stream that's kind of like Mario Maker, but uh, with Zelda stuff. Oh, cool! That's the dream, right? Yeah, um, tried to do it with that um, re-release of of uh, Link's Awakening. Didn't really work out too well, but eventually they'll get there. I think. Wait, really? It had a level editor in there. Yeah, Order. it's it's strange. It has a bunch of, you know, a bunch of prerequisite rules because you 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 don't want to make something that someone feasibly cannot beat, but yeah. Cool, cool. Um Thrasher, do you have things to plug? Uh just that uh hopefully by the time this drops, you will be able to find 100 oddities for a vampire's lair on drivethroughrpg.com. That's uh my latest collaboration with Skirmisher Publishing. I've illustrated the book, uh co-wrote the book, uh and it's just a 100 strange and unusual things one might find in a vampire's lair uh, in a tabletop RPG. Although then again, if you're writing a gothic novel with a vampire and you are stuck <laughs> for what to do, roll on that table, maybe it'll inspire are you <laughs> 100 oddities for a vampire's lair that's cool alex uh you can find me um on the old twitter at crab nebula 1914 um also drop by my youtube channel the trailer project i just posted not too long ago a trailer commentary for alan parker's awesome 87 film uh angel heart starring uh young mickey rourke uh, lisa bonet and robert de niro Ah, that was wow. a shall we That's say he- Yeah, that was shall we yeah, say a heavy in- that was a heavy influence for the Gabriel Knight uh games that Sierra did. Oh, very cool. Oh yeah. Sort of like their Anne Ricey stuff. Uh oh yeah. And that Zelda game I was talking about, I think you'd like it, Brian, is called uh is on Steam Super Dungeon Maker Fink's Awakening. That's an awful title. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I it's I, I think it's under twenty bucks, but it's uh, it's pretty interesting. 
what people are doing on there. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, you can follow me at matwbt on Twitter, and uh, I'd like to make an announcement on here. Although it'll be like the show won't come out for like in a month or so. I um, I'm starting my first full time job in the games industry in about nice. a week. So I'll, I'll be a technical oh, congratulations. writer. Congratulations! Thank you. Uh, awesome. I'll be a technical writer, or doing, I guess, both public-facing and internal technical documentation for web-based games in the crypto NFT space. There's a lot of um, investment going on there, and uh, it'll be a wild west experience, if nothing else. <laughs> You'll be able to write a tell-all in 20 years. It'll be great. Um, <laughs> Considering the NDAs, I'm not sure if I can even do that. But yes, I'll I'll have to preserve my brain in a jar for museums or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's crazy out there. Uh, well, thanks again, Brian. Uh, appreciate having you on. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, we'd love to return the favor sometime. If there's a you cool. just oh, yeah. you just mentioned the games on the Slack. Is that right? The games on Slack. Or sorry, you mentioned like what games you're doing on your show coming up. On, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we're on the next, green light thing. Uh, next, what's the next one? What's the the next one is uh, yeah, Spirit Tracks, and then after that, um, I don't know if you, if you ever want to come by and talk about your favorite Zelda game, I'm I'm sure we can do something with that. Okay, no, that's usually usually how it works. We'll bring people on to do a little interview about talk about their favorite game. So, gotcha. Well, thanks so much, Brian. Have a good one. Absolutely. Take care. See you later. That was cool. Um, yeah, we went over time a bit, but no problem. I'm going to go back to sleep, I think. Yeah, hmm. I got to do some homework. I, I guess so. Should we should we put like the girl you left behind or the John Muir song from Sam and Max uh, at the end of the podcast? Or just Why the lady thing. Pussy, pussy, pussy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think. That, that would be that a great, word. like, uh, text message noise. 17 <laughs> times in this. Hang on, I'm blowing up. Pussy, pussy, pussy. That, that should have been the quote on IMDb. Is just pussy, pussy, pussy. pussy, pussy, pussy. I'm reminded of the 90s Alice in Wonderland miniseries, where at one point Cheshire Cat is called Cheshire Puss. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of cute in that context. That's the one where it's Whoopi yeah. Goldberg, right? Yes, and Martin Short plays the role he was born to play as the Mad Hatter. Oh, yeah. Christopher Lloyd is the White Knight. With awful 90s CG for television. Delightful. (laughs) One man's sunset is another man's dawn. That movie also had a nearly dead Gene Wilder as the mock turtle. Oh, that's right. Uh, For a sequel cast, too, this is Matt. (laughs) This is Thrasher. (laughs) Well, this is Alex. Same. Well, I damn, I already used up my one man sunset. Uh, ah, well, uh, you gotta use the lazy eye. I just a little offensive there because uh, I my left eye is a little lazier than my right eye. It's like it's trying to make one eye more jealous of the other eye, showing off, looking at things, reading things in lines. Oh, jeez. Finally, you're about to become a mouse sandwich. Yes. That was more Tim Curry than... We're we're (laughs) shutting you down, Catterwall. Wall.